Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Good evening, Sinners. Welcome to the seventh episode of Sinister Tales. Tonight I'm going to read you two seriously creepy stories. We're going to start off tonight's episode with a story by a Reddit user called Pewdinator. It's about a boy whose father, night after night, reads him the same bedtime story. But despite how much he enjoyed it and how safe it made him feel, it might actually have had a much darker meaning than he could have ever known. The first tale of the night has the fitting title. I think my old bedtime story has a more sinister meaning. And now, relax, take a deep breath, and enjoy this sinister tale. Every night, my dad was in charge of putting me to bed. He would help me brush my teeth, and then he would tuck me into my nice warm bed. Then he would tell me a story. Every night, it was the same story. The story of Bosco and Billy. I had lots of books in my room, as my mother would read to me throughout the day. But dad would never read any of those books. He would always tell me the same story. I always assumed that either the story had come from a book, but my father had told it so many times that he didn't need to read it from the book anymore or that it was a story he was told as a child. I always enjoyed the story of Bosco and Billy. I always found that it would help me go to sleep. Usually, I would be almost asleep by the end of the story. I slowly learned all of the words to the story, and would sometimes recite it along with my dad. For some reason, probably because I heard it every night for years, the story stuck with me, and even to this day, I still remember all of the words to the story. The story in its entirety is as follows. Billy the bear was an ordinary bear with an ordinary life, but he had a small friend named Bosco who would get him into strife. Most of the time, Bosco would behave, but sometimes he acted out. Billy tried to keep him in line, but sometimes he would break out. Like one time, Bosco was hungry and decided he would steal food. Billy tried to stop him and explain to Bosco that stealing is rude. But Bosco didn't listen, he stole the food anyway and took it to his secret spot and hid it away. Bosco took the food to the large oak tree that was in the woods. There he stuffed the food inside, and that's where he hid his goods. Billy never found the stolen food. It's still hidden there to this day. Bosco wishes that it is never found. He hopes, and he prays. Billy is kind, and Bosco is a little bit silly. And that is the story of Bosco and Billy. Now the story seems innocent enough, and I always thought it was a cute little story about two bears 
but after recent events, I now know it's a lot more sinister than it first appears. My dad passed away a few years ago, and it took a toll on all of us, my mom especially. She became a little bit reclusive after my father passed, and so I didn't see her as often, because she shut herself off from others. I spent a long time trying to create a relationship with my mother again, and slowly, over the course of a couple of years, I did manage to reconnect with her. Things weren't as they once were, but she did invite me over once a week for a cup of coffee. During these hour-long visits, we would sit in the kitchen and talk about times gone by, about my childhood, about my time at school, and about all of the good times we had together. The one subject that didn't come up, however, was my father. I think the pain was still too raw for my mom to talk about. On one of my weekly visits, though, I thought that I would try and mention my father, as I felt that it might do mom some good to talk about him. I decided to mention the story that he would tell me every night. Do you remember the story dad used to tell me before bed? The story of Billy and Bosco? I hesitantly asked, not knowing how mom would react to the mention of her late husband. Mom looked up from her cup of coffee that she was drinking. She looked confused, maybe because it was the first time he had been mentioned for a number of years, or maybe because she didn't know what I was talking about. No, I don't remember that story, she replied. You had a lot of books, so I can't remember all of them. I was a bit surprised by this. Dad told it to me every night, so I would have thought that she would remember it. I then went on to explain that it wasn't a book. It was a story that he would recite, without reading it off of a page, because he knew it so well. I thought that your father would read you a different book each night, she said, sounding confused. That's what he always told me, anyway. I thought that this was especially strange because he never read me one of my books, and I would have thought that my own mother would have known this. What was this story about? she asked me. It was about two bears, one named Billy and one named Bosco. I was about to continue explaining the story when my mom suddenly interrupted me. Did you just say the bear was named Bosco? she asked, sounding quite serious. Yeah, that's right, his name was Bosco, I replied. That's strange, mom said. She had a look on her face that looked like she was trying to remember something. Your father used to tell me about a friend that he used to have named Bosco, Mum continued. He used to say that Bosco would get him in a lot of trouble when he was younger. I never met this Bosco, which your dad says was a good thing. He also said that he only met up with Bosco only once or twice after we met, and then your father told me he was no longer going to see Bosco. He said that he finally got rid of him. I was always curious as to who he was. I have never seen any photos of him or any evidence that he existed now that I think about it. So, it is strange that he told you a story that contained a character with the name Bosco. Mom stopped talking for a second, and I didn't know how to respond. She then looked at me and asked, Do you remember this story? Can you tell it to me? I recited the entire story to her. She listened to the whole tale without changing her expression. She took it all in, and then she asked, An oak tree? Are you sure that Bosco hid the food in an old oak tree in the woods? Yeah, it was definitely an old oak tree. Why is that? I asked her, sensing that something wasn't quite right. It's just that on mine and your father's first date, he took me to an old oak tree that was inside the Shelton Woods. Only a ten minute drive from here, she responded. He told me then that it was lucky for me that Bosco hadn't decided to interrupt their date. She then stopped talking and stared at the wall behind where I was sitting. I think it's time for you to go now. I'm sorry, she told me, a hint of sadness in her voice. I thought that maybe it was for the best that I did leave. I got up 
and gave her a small hug, which she didn't even seem to notice. Then I collected my things and headed out the front door. I got into my car and began to drive home. On the way home, however, the thought of the old oak tree and Bosco began to fill my head. I couldn't escape these thoughts. I didn't know what it all meant, if it meant anything at all. I don't know what compelled me, but I had to visit the Shelton Woods and find this oak tree. I turned my car around and headed in the direction of the woods. Fifteen minutes later, I found myself standing at the edge of the woods. I took a step forward and entered them. I didn't know exactly where this oak tree was, but I was determined to find it. I explored the woods for around ten minutes before I saw it. Standing in front of me was a huge oak tree, its branches extending high up into the sky. I walked over to the base of the tree. A sense of fear started to overcome me. Something didn't feel right. It felt like something terrible had happened here. I looked down at the ground, at the base of the tree, and I saw that the dirt there looked slightly different than the rest of the dirt in the woods. I don't know why I did this, but I bent down and began to dig in this dirt. The police say that if I hadn't started digging, then they probably never would have found them. There were four bodies in total, all young women around the age of 24. All of them had been dead for over 30 years. It was undeniable. They were all murdered and buried under this tree. The DNA testing was also clear. My father was responsible for the killings. Somehow, he managed to keep all of this hidden for many years. He never told anyone. The only clues that he gave were through my bedtime story, which I think was his way of confessing. The only thing I am not sure of now is who is Bosco. Maybe my father and Bosco are the same person. Or maybe he really did have a friend with that name. I don't think we will ever know. I don't think I want to know. Thank you, Pewdinator, for letting me share this story. Can we truly be sure that our parents or other loved ones have always been the person they are today? Or could they be hiding a darker past? Would you want to know? I am always in pursuit of good creepy stories, so if you have a favorite creepypasta, short horror story, or other sinister tale you would like me to read, please send them to mysinistertale at gmail.com. You can find this email and a link to my Instagram in the description of this episode. Maybe you have even written something yourself that you would like me to share with everyone. Don't hesitate to send it to me. The next tale of the night was requested by Margot, a fan of the show. It's a legendary creepypasta, which was posted to Creepypasta Wiki back in 2010 by a user called Orange Soda, but the original author is still unknown. This story takes us back to a Soviet-era Russia in the year 1947, where an awful experiment was conducted on five test subjects. The goal of the experiment was to see the effects of extreme sleep deprivation. It's called the Russian Sleep Experiment. Now, relax, take a deep breath, and enjoy the final sinister tale of the night. Russian researchers in the late 1940s kept five people awake for 15 days using an experimental gas-based stimulant. They were kept in a sealed environment to carefully monitor their oxygen intake so the gas didn't kill them, since it was toxic in high concentrations. This was before closed-circuit cameras, so they had only microphones and five-inch thick glass porthole-sized windows into the chamber to monitor them. The chamber was stocked with books, cots to sleep on but no bedding, running water and toilets. 
and enough dried food to last all five for over a month. The test subjects were political prisoners deemed enemies of the state during World War II. Everything was fine for the first five days. The subjects hardly complained, having been promised falsely that they would be freed if they submitted to the test and did not sleep for 30 days. Their conversations and activities were monitored, and it was noted that they continued to talk about increasingly traumatic incidents in their past, and the general tone of their conversation took on a darker aspect after the four-day mark. After five days, they started to complain about the circumstances and events that led them to where they were and started to demonstrate severe paranoia. They stopped talking to each other and began alternately whispering to the microphone and one-way mirrored portholes. Oddly, they all seemed to think they could win the trust of the experimenters by turning over their comrades, the other subjects in captivity with them. At first, the researchers suspected that this was an effect of the gas itself. After nine days, the first of them started screaming. He ran the length of the chamber, repeating a yelling at the top of his lungs for three hours straight. He continued attempting to scream, but was only able to produce occasional squeaks. The researchers postulated that he had physically torn his vocal cords. The most surprising thing about this behavior is how the other captives reacted to it, or rather, didn't react to it. They continued whispering to the microphones until the second of the captives started to scream. The two non-screaming captives took the books apart, smeared page after page with their own feces, and pasted them calmly over the glass portholes. The screaming promptly stopped. So did the whispering to the microphones. After three more days passed, the researchers checked the microphones hourly to make sure they were working. Since they thought it impossible, no sound could be coming with five people inside. The oxygen consumption in the chamber indicated that all five must still be alive. In fact, it was the amount of oxygen five people would consume at a very heavy level of strenuous exercise. On the morning of the 14th day, the researchers did something they said they would not do to get a reaction from the captives. They used the intercom inside the chamber, hoping to provoke any response from the captives they were afraid were either dead or vegetables. They announced, We are opening the chamber to test the microphones. Step away from the door and lie flat on the floor, or you will be shot. Compliance will earn one of you your immediate freedom. To their surprise, they heard a single phrase in a calm voice response. We no longer want to be freed. Debate broke out among the researchers and the military forces funding the research. Unable to provoke any more response using the intercom, it was finally decided to open the chamber at midnight on the 15th day. The chamber was flushed of the stimulant gas and filled with fresh air, and immediately voices from the microphones began to object. Three different voices began begging, as if pleading for the life of loved ones to turn the gas back on. The chamber was opened, and soldiers sent in to retrieve the test subjects. They began to scream louder than ever, and so did the soldiers when they saw what was inside. Four of the five subjects were still alive, although no one could rightly call the state that any of them was in, life. The food rations past day five had not been so much as touched. There were chunks of meat from the dead test subjects' thighs and chest stuffed into the drain in the center of the chamber blocking the drain and allowing four inches of water to accumulate on the floor. Precisely how much of the water on the floor was actually blood was never determined. All four surviving test subjects also had large portions of muscle and skin torn away from their bodies. The deconstruction of flesh and exposed bone on their fingertips indicated that the wounds were inflicted by hand, not with teeth, as the researchers initially thought. Closer examination of the position and angles of the wounds indicated that most, if not all of them, were self-inflicted. 
The abdominal organs below the ribcage of all four test subjects had been removed, while the heart, lungs, and diaphragm remained in place. The skin and most of the muscles attached to the ribs had been ripped off, exposing the lungs through the ribcage. All the blood vessels and organs remained intact. They had just been taken out and laid on the floor, fanning out around the eviscerated but still living bodies of the subjects. The digestive tract of all four could be seen to be working, digesting food. It quickly became apparent that what they were digesting was their own flesh that they had ripped off and eaten over the course of days. Most of the soldiers were Russian special operatives at the facility, but still many refused to return to the chamber to remove the test subjects. They continued to scream to be left in the chamber and alternately begged and demanded that the gas be turned back on, lest they fall asleep. To everyone's surprise, the test subjects put up a fierce fight in the process of being removed from the chamber. One of the Russian soldiers died from having his throat ripped out. Another was gravely injured having his testicles ripped off and an artery in his leg severed by one of the subject's teeth. Another five of the soldiers lost their lives, if you count once they committed suicide in the weeks following the incident. In the struggle, one of the four living subjects had his spleen ruptured, and he bled out almost immediately. The medical researchers attempted to sedate him, but this was proved impossible. He was injected with more than ten times the human dose of a morphine derivative, and still fought like a cornered animal, breaking the ribs and arm of one doctor. His heart was seen to beat for a full two minutes after he had bled out to the point there was more air in his vascular system than blood. Even after it stopped, he continued to scream and flail for another three minutes, struggling to attack anyone in reach and just repeating the word, more, over and over, weaker and weaker, until he finally fell silent. The surviving three test subjects were heavily restrained and moved to a medical facility. The two with intact vocal cords continuously begging for the gas, demanding to be kept awake. The most injured of the three was taken to the only surgical operating room that the facility had. In the process of preparing the subject to have his organs placed back within his body, it was found that he was effectively immune to the sedative they had given him to prepare him for the surgery. He fought furiously against his drains when the anesthetic gas was brought out to put him under. He managed to tear most of the way through a four-inch wide leather strap on one wrist even though the weight of a 200-pound soldier was holding that wrist as well. It took only a little more anesthetic than normal to put him under. In the instant, his eyelids fluttered and closed. His heart stopped. In the autopsy of the test subject that died on the operating table, it was found that his body had tripled the normal level of oxygen. His muscles that were still attached to his skeletons were badly torn, and he had broken nine bones in his struggle to not be subdued. Most of them were from the force his own muscles had exerted on them. The second survivor had been the first of the group of five to start screaming. His vocal cords destroyed. He was unable to beg or object to surgery, and he only reacted by shaking his head violently in disapproval when the anesthetic gas was brought near him. He shook his head yes when someone suggested reluctantly they tried the surgery without anesthetic and did not react for the entire six-hour procedure of replacing his abdominal organs and attempting to cover them with what remained of his skin. The surgeon presiding stated repeatedly that it should not be medically possible for the patient to still be alive. One terrified nurse assisting the surgery stated that she had seen the patient's mouth curl into a smile several times whenever his eyes met hers. When the surgery ended, the subject looked at the surgeon and began to wheeze loudly, attempting to talk while struggling. Assuming this must be something of drastic importance, the surgeon had a pen and pad fetched so the patient could write his message. It was simple. 
keep cutting. The other two test subjects were given the same surgery, both without anesthetic as well, although they had to be injected with a paralytic for the duration of the operation. The surgeon found it impossible to perform the operation while the patients laughed continuously. Once paralyzed, the subjects could only follow the attending researchers with their eyes. The paralytic cleared their system in an abnormally short period of time, and they were soon trying to escape their bonds. The moment they could speak, they were again asking for the stimulant gas. The researchers tried asking why they had injured themselves, why they had ripped out their own guts, and why they wanted to be given the gas again. Only one response was given. I must remain awake. All three subjects' restraints were reinforced, and they were placed back into the chamber, awaiting determination as to what should be done with them. The researchers, facing the wrath of their military benefactors for having failed the stated goals of their projects considered euthanizing the surviving subjects, the commanding officer, an ex-KGB, instead saw potential and wanted to see what would happen if they were put back on the gas. The researchers strongly objected, but were overruled. In preparation for being sealed in the chamber again, the subjects were connected to an EEG monitor and had their restraints padded for long-term confinement. To everyone's surprise, all three stopped struggling at the moment it was let slip that they were going back on the gas. It was obvious that at this point all three were putting up a great struggle to stay awake. One of the subjects that could speak was humming loudly and continuously. The mute subject was straining his legs against the leather bonds with all his might. First left, then right, then left again for something to focus on. The remaining subject was holding his head off his pillow and blinking rapidly. Having been the first to be wired for EEG, most of the researchers were monitoring his brainwaves in surprise. They were normal most of the time, but sometimes flatlined inexplicably. It looked as if he were repeatedly suffering brain death before returning to normal. As they focused on paper scrolling out of the brainwave monitor, only one nurse saw his eyes slip shut at the same moment his head hit the pillow. His brainwaves immediately changed to that of deep sleep, then flatlined for the last time as his heart simultaneously stopped. The only remaining subject that could speak started screaming to be sealed in now. His brainwaves showed the same flat lines as the one who had just died from falling asleep. The commander gave the order to seal the chamber, with both subjects inside, as well as three researchers. One of the named three immediately drew his gun and shot the commander point-blank between the eyes, then turned the gun on the mute subject and blew his brains out as well. He pointed his gun at the remaining subject, still restrained to a bed as the remaining members of the medical and researchers team fled the room. He pointed his gun at the remaining subject, still restrained to a bed as the remaining members of the medical and research team fled the room. I won't be locked in here with these things, not with you, he screamed at the man strapped to the table. What are you? he demanded. I must know. The subject smiled. Have you forgotten so easily? the subject asked. We are you. We are the madness that lurks within you all, begging to be free at every moment in your deepest animal mind. We are what you hide from in your beds every night. We are what you sedate into silence and paralysis when you go to the nocturnal haven where we cannot tread. The researcher paused, then aimed at the subject's heart and fired. The EEG flatlined as the subject weakly choked out. So nearly free.
Most of you have probably experienced sleep deprivation at some point in your life, pulling an all-nighter in preparation for the big test, a cranky newborn refusing to let you sleep, or maybe insomnia. The ones of you who have might know the effects it can have on your mind. After about 72 hours without sleep, it's common to have severe hallucinations. The longest a person has ever gone without sleep is 11 days. I sincerely hope that you get a good night's sleep tonight. Please consider subscribing and following me on Instagram at Sinister Tales Podcast. A special thanks goes out to Pudinator for letting me share your story, and thank you Orange Soda for spreading the Russian sleeping experiment by posting it to Creepypasta Wiki back in the days. And also, thank you Margot for requesting it. Do you want one of your creepy stories featured in a future episode, or do you have a favorite story you would like me to read? Email me at mysinistertale at gmail.com Thank you for listening to this episode of Sinister Tales. Sleep well, sinners. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.